This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. This morning, we have with us China Dixon from Taos Land Trust, my co-worker and partner in crime there. And we are going to be talking about the Taos Land Trust Working Lands Initiative. We've had China on before, so um, but I'm going to still ask China to just introduce herself. My background is in environmental science, uh, social justice, climate resilience, um, and all of that really is combined through the lens of critical geography. And I was born in Taos. I was raised primarily in Taos um, and also in Hawaii. And I moved back here about two years ago to kind of engage in some of this on-the-ground resilience practice. I had spent a lot of time in grad school doing my research and basing my research around climate resilience for northern New Mexico um, with food sovereignty and food security really being drivers of how I framed that issue. And when I came back, I was lucky enough to have these opportunities to work with um, the different nonprofits such as Taos Land Trust and the Rio Fernando Collaborative to really start engaging and testing out some of these ideas and working in the community that I love and cherish. And yeah, I work with Jim closely at the Land Trust in a number of other capacities too. Um, The last time I was on the show, I was here representing the Rio Fernando Collaborative, which the Land Trust is also a partner of. Um, And with the Land Trust, my primary responsibility is working in this Working Lands Resiliency Initiative. And we'll dive into that more, but the essence of it is really around uh, that nexus that you just mentioned, actually, of land, water, culture, conservation. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. So today, like I said, we are talking about the Working Lands Initiative being run by uh, Taos Land Trust and, 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 and our partner organizations. And we want to dive in pretty deeply into that and just inform everybody what that is, what it's about, how it works, and ideally how uh, community members can participate. So start us off, what is the Working Lands Initiative? Okay, it is a beautiful initiative. Um, It's also a bit of a broad initiative. So I'm gonna break it down into three parts. The overarching goal is to increase the production and the working land capacity in Taos and to help uh, keep some of our really, really beautiful agricultural land, which is what we mean when we say working lands is agricultural lands. Um, to keep those lands, you know, out of development, um, if that's a threat, or out of, you know, just going follow from, follow from the drought and things like that. And so that's the overarching goal. And the way that we approach that is through, you know, sometimes conservation. Sometimes it's working with um, organizations such as Taos Valley Aseki Association or Alianza Agricultura and really working to do some on-the-ground restoration. And so the approach definitely varies based on the need. Um, My primary role in it is undertaking what's called a vulnerability and capacity assessment, otherwise known as vulnerability mapping. And this in practice comes from um, development and disaster relief practice. And now, in our time, it's often used for climate resilience development and looking at agricultural communities globally. And so that's um, kind of the draw for using that in this town. And then another thing that really kind of pushed this initiative was the loss of agricultural valuation on some of those really productive working lands. And so... What what does that mean? Okay. (laughs) Your agricultural valuation is, say that I had 
10 acres of land. And historically, I had had alfalfa growing on it. Um, and then say that all of a sudden I'm an 80-year-old, which I'm not, but say that I am. And my children no longer live here. And I'm, I'm too tired. I'm not going to go out there and work the land necessarily. And so I stop, I stop working the land. That valuation that I had historically had on the land, using it as agricultural land and for agricultural purpose, um, can sometimes be lost if there's a reassessment if I haven't been keeping that land in production. So it's, for lack of better words, it's a tax status, but it's a valuation rather than like a, a tax break or anything. But but at the the bottom line is <laughs> is that that folks who lose that status as agricultural working lands then have to pay a higher uh, fee to the county? Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, you know, often the lands that we're seeing this happen to um, have, you know, historically been in agricultural families for generations. And I think, you know, if, again, say that I'm historically used to paying a lower rate on my land in tax and all of a sudden it skyrockets, you know, one of the biggest pressures there is then to sell it into development or to sell it because uh, the tax rate would be so enormously high compared to what I would be used to. Right. And this has been a big issue in Taos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when uh, Darlene Vihel, who I work closely with, when she was assessor, this kind of started uh, hitting Taos. And so all of this assessment was happening. And I think that Taos as a county was kind of one of the first in northern Mexico to really, really feel the impact of the reevaluation, which is required. It's just the assessor's office doing their job. Right. Um, but it's also, I think, a really good incentive to help keep land in agricultural production because all of a sudden there is, you know, yeah, that very, very visceral incentive there. And, and the, it, it's also true that it's, it's hard to make money in agriculture. Yes. So, so it might not be worth it to, to necessarily be working your land uh, actively, but then you want to have your land. And so, so people deal with some complex situations mm -hmm. and some complicated deals because you may have to go to work every day just to, just to, to, just to make a regular paycheck. Right? right. But then, but your land is still technically agriculture. You still would like to use it as that, but you can't because you can't really make any money off of it. So then you have to pay a higher tax and then you're stuck. Right. Or <clears throat> if, even if you don't want to, you know, do ag on your land, but you do want to keep it in the family again, like it's that, it's that push that might might incentivize someone to sell land, unfortunately, just because. Right. So, so you want to keep it open space. Yeah. <clears throat> but you can't, but you don't necessarily farm it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then your, your options are limited. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. All right. So that's one, that's one aspect. Right. But that's an important, because this is, because the Working Lands Initiative in part grew from this frustration that we've, that we've been having in the community over this tax issue. Yeah, absolutely. Or assessment issue. Yes, yes. And um, Alianza, which is a partner organization that I mentioned before, really started spearheading the effort around that, um, gosh, I believe five years ago. And so I think they've really championed that issue and have worked on policy around that issue and are doing a lot of the on-the-ground restoration. Um, and then, you know, the hope of Working Lands is to identify some of those parcels and then continue to work with our community and organizational partners. Okay, yeah. all right. So that's one of the... One of the reasons for this Working Lands in initiative, what are Correct. some of the others? Yeah, so in my mind, I mean, this is a huge reason, but also for me, one of the primary drivers um, are just the impacts of climate change that we are facing. And so looking at how we can build resilience, climate resilience, uh, eco-resilience, community resilience in a time of a changing climate. 
And so if we look at our productive open spaces, if we look at agriculture as a form of resilience, um, I think it's completely imperative, really, that we do this for our community, we do this within our community, um, and then also just on a landscape scale, we help bring some of this land back into production or keep it in production uh, simply for an eco-resilience. So, and why, why does that matter? I mean, why does having land in production mm-hmm. contribute to resilience? So, if we look at it from a food sovereignty or food security perspective, you know, that's probably one of the clearest uh, ways of looking at it, but also when we look at our acequia systems, when we look at our water capacity, our water use, and how to maintain some of these really, really sustainable systems that we have uh, used for generations, I think that in order to keep those going, we need to have working lands. We need to have agricultural lands because otherwise so many of these systems um, wouldn't be viable anymore. Again, looking at acequias for an example, um, you know, if we have a plot of agricultural land and then development and then ag land, it's really hard for the acequia to maintain that continuity, to get by in from parcientes, et cetera. And so trying to keep some of that at least in more of a continuous agricultural space helps that whole system flow, which we need for just our own resilience in this community in both a community sense and an eco sense. Right. And we talk a lot on this show, it's kind of like one of those themes we just beat on again and again and mm-hmm. again, is this this climate resiliency mm-hmm. piece of how do we make our, our community more um, more adaptable and, and more um, flexible when it comes to being hit by climate change. I don't ever imagine a time when we won't you know, be able to import food, but I do imagine a time where the costs of importing food are very high because of transportation costs in in particular. And so it, so growing locally and having those systems functioning, we'll be able to have food that we can afford. Absolutely. And the way I like to visualize it, and I... As many people know, I tend to draw pictures to get my thoughts out, and no one can see that over <laughs> so the radio. It's not going to work today. Yeah, but I will try and describe it. So I think that if we have our little circle, we have our little hub of Taos, and then in my mind, resilience is this beautiful thing that you can build around and within the existing structure. And it, as you're saying, if that structure crumbles, if all of a sudden we can't import food, right? Great. We have systems of resilience built there. And if those structural systems never crumble and we're always importing food, okay, fine. But that resilience is still working every day to increase the sustainability and the community resilience of our... our right, yeah. right. And even if we can still import food at a reasonable mm-hmm. cost or, or, or whatever, we, th- having working lands also contributes to the health of the local economy, which is, again, another form of resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Another form of flexibility. That's great. Okay, so those are two, two, two um, reasons that we have started this initiative. Is there another? You know, it's really interesting... Um, a land trust, any land trust, and the land trust in Taos, you know, we're often known for conservation. And I think that sometimes in our community brain, we don't think of conservation as like agricultural preservation or um, as like agricultural productivity. But I think it's so, it's such a good opportunity to start to enhance that notion that conservation isn't like taking land out of production or it's not taking it out of these systems that we really want to support. It's just augmenting that. And I think that there are many, many different ways that we can you know, either work with a very classic conservation easement or we can work with other forms of conservation, other forms of agricultural uh, production and preservation that 
still enhance all of those activities, but really kind of breaking down the notion that there is a divide or that there's an opposition between those two things because there isn't. Right. Um, but I think that's kind of cemented in the way that we think of conservation sometimes. Right. Yeah. I think that's that's spot on. So who are the who are the partners who we're working with on this? Yeah. So I think by nature of working in a small community and because of the Rio Fernando Collaborative and because many of our partners already work closely together, um, it's kind of a big conglomerate. <laughs> but I would say that primarily it's the Taos Land Trust, obviously spearheading this initiative. Um, but we work really closely with Taos Valley Aseki Association. And then we also work with Alianza for more of that on-the-ground restoration. And so I would really identify those as two of our primary organizational partners. But it goes without saying that we're working with you know, the county, with the assessor's office, thankfully, um, you know, with all of these other, you know, even the town, with all these other organizations and entities and individuals. And for people who don't know, who is Alianza? Oh, Alianza Agricultura, it's an organization that is based around um, agricultural restoration in Taos and in northern New Mexico more broadly. And they work uh, to spearhead both policy, but also on the ground work. And so uh, trying to expand programs such as Landlink, for instance, which is already an existing program in New Mexico, uh, but bringing it to Taos, and that is a program that helps connect farmers who may not have access to land to individuals who may have land but no longer have the ability or time or incentive to farm. And so working on things like that. Um, and then they've also worked a lot on the policy level around the agricultural valuation issue in New Mexico broadly, but based in Taos. So I've talked to a lot of people over the years who, um, especially young folks who want to, uh, they want to have a piece of land to farm. They don't have enough money to farm. So mm -hmm. it, it, Landlink can hook uh, people who want to farm up with people who have land. Is that how it works? That's correct. Yeah. In a, in a pretty basic sense. And it's still being developed in Taos, but I would say Alianza is definitely the organization spearheading that and taking responsibility for bringing that into Northern counties. Cool. Okay, so diving into how how this works. Mm -hmm. So you you talked about vulnerability mapping, mm -hmm. and then the other piece was. So we're also working um, with uh, appraisers and surveyors to help make the process. If someone chooses to go through a conservation easement, which isn't the only option, um, but if that option is chosen, working with some of these more technical entities to get that process to be uh, you know, very financially equitable and also accessible. Um, and then on a larger level, working on policy efforts to help, hopefully, uh, guide you know, conservation and agricultural production and um, development and looking at all of those things as very intertwined, but trying to figure out how we can you know, do that with the, with the best result for the landscape and the community. Mm -hmm. So I want to dive into some details on that okay. in a little bit, but um, we have to take a break right now. And then when we come back, uh, let's talk about vulnerability mapping. Great. Hi, this is Christine Ortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. Cool. Okay, so vulnerability mapping. Right. Um, what what is that? I know you said it it, it started from disaster relief uh, mapping, but let's let's unpack that for for folks. Like that's it seems so technical. Yeah, I know, and I'm 
I'm brainstorming on maybe a different name to use for it. Even though that's what it's called. Uh, so, okay. Let's start at the very beginning. Little disclaimer. Good place to start. Yes. Okay. So I think when we think of mapping, um, we think of maps. We think of cartography, right? Which is definitely a component of uh, any type of mapping often. But vulnerability mapping or a vulnerability capacity assessment is really the goal of it is to take a look at existing capacity and existing vulnerability um, within any type of landscape or social structure that you might be examining. So it could be in a classroom. You could do the same type of assessment. Um, it could be, you know, on a national level, even, you know, regional level. Um, what we're doing is working within the parameters of Taos County and more specifically uh, working with community partners in San Cristobal, in Cañon, and in Talpa. Uh, and within each of these places, one of my primary desires is to speak with as many uh, farmers, with as many parcientes, with as many people who are interested in this as possible to get a feeling for what some of the primary needs might be in terms of agriculture and in terms of uh, working lands and productivity and water. Um, and then also what the, what the biggest strengths are. And I think one thing that I want to take note of is that, you know, often <laughs> development practice is very colonial and it's very top down, even if it's trying to be ground up. Uh, you know, we think of even sustainable development. And one question that was always kind of hammered into my brain by one of my favorite professors, Ed Carr, who has actually guided me in this process a lot, is, you know, who sustains whose development, right? So even sustainable development has so many faults to it, and development often fails. So that is where, for me, as an individual who is from Taos and who cares deeply about Taos, um, kind of taking some of this model and, of this, and this template and turning it on its head a little bit, right? Because I don't think that it will be as useful to just go in with a pen and paper like development practices often taught, um, but rather really, really looking and engaging with different community partners that are already doing this work. So for instance, in Cañon, um, my colleague, you know, Vicente Fernandez is someone who I work with closely and we're looking at different acequias, we're looking at different systems, we're looking at some of, you know, the needs identified there or in, you know, Telpa, I'm working with Toby Martinez and Daryl, who is another colleague and, and folks such as this in San Cristobal, it's been J.R. Logan and we've had just had so much beautiful community work coming out of each of these interactions and conversations and it's also a process that's very much built on already existing networks of collaboration and already existing networks of trust really to start to have these conversations about okay you know what happens if the water doesn't run in two years again like it didn't two years ago in a time of extreme drought you know what is our plan for resilience in that moment what is our plan for resilience in 10 years if that continues to happen etc and I think in order to have those really foundational and important conversations um, it's sometimes a slow process and it's also a process that really requires that just daily interaction daily interface um, within community and so so with so when you say mapping mm -hmm. um, will there be an actual map that's produced of uh, and, and what what will that show yeah so on the mapping 
level, uh, there are a few different things. So one thing that I'm working on currently is kind of downscaling some of the climate data that we have for Taos. And so downscaling, um, usually climate data is pretty broad. Like we can you know, make projections, obviously, of what we expect to happen with precipitation, for instance. But it's usually like at this very high level. And so trying to downscale that to be more locally appropriate. Um, and then I do intend to just show that visually through maps, which I think are a really useful way of showing anything visually um, and showing different, you know, climate impact scenarios. So RCPs and and looking at, you know, temperature fluctuation, precipitation fluctuation, um, drought indices, et cetera, under these different scenarios currently and into the future. So that's one one portion of mapping that might come out of this. Um, another portion is it's uh, more similar to cognitive mapping. And what that is, is really working with community perspectives or individual perspectives, individual knowledge of climate impacts. Um, and then it's also looking at how, how we find ways to bolster agricultural production um, in a sustainable and resilient way, given all of these different factors and perspectives around things such as drought or, you know, economic gain and loss from working in ag, et cetera. And so that's not necessarily a cartographic map. That's more of like a mental map almost, um, but it's still really informative and it's really useful to work with different folks and say, okay, you know, here's here's this one representation or one perspective. Like, is this something that you also are finding to be true or aligning with? And again, that's not like visualized in a cartographic map, but it helps to connect some of those dots and linkages that are really important to see. And then also working with uh, Taos Valley Asiki Association, primarily on looking at uh, our hydrographic surveys and also looking at our acequia lines and trying to say, okay, where do we have land that is historically agricultural? Where do we have land that is historically in production? Um, where is that land, you know, maybe in danger of going out of production? And again, that has to draw so much on like, individual knowledge, right? A map that already exists doesn't show that. And trying to figure some of that out so that we can hopefully work with landowners, with individuals to really um, narrow the focus to some of those, in quotes, more vulnerable parcels or properties. And it may be that it's a you know second homeowner who lives in California and doesn't know what's happening on their property, et cetera. But, but really trying to just streamline that focus a little bit to get some of the more vulnerable parcels um, into production. So, so that literally involves going out and, and talking to different landowners, different community members about different pieces of land, um, what's most vulnerable, but what's, what's also a potential strength mm -hmm. in these areas so that you, you literally build a, a visual map of who we might want to start working with or who has different possibilities or options that we could look at um, and who might be doing what. Yeah, exactly. And also looking at... Um, kind of the the intersection of vulnerability and capacity. So, you know, say that in one area, um, equipment is, again, in quotes, like a big vulnerability. Maybe there isn't uh, sufficient agricultural equipment, but hey, in this other area, there's lots of equipment, but there isn't necessarily financing measures to, you know, help improve 
fencing. That's that's just an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at those different things and seeing also where uh, some of those dots can help start to connect and help to fill in some of that vulnerability with existing capacity that is already on the ground. Right. Um, rather than, you know, again, like flying in this great idea and landing it and, and not being useful or it just being a repetition of something that's already happening within community. Right. Right. And, and, and as we know, you, I think this is true everywhere, but I, it's particularly true in our community is um, something, there's a famous quote by a, a New Mexico governor from a couple decades ago, and it was something along the lines of um, whatever uh, plan works somewhere else in the country is sure to fail in New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what, you know, what I take from that is that, that we have such unique situations, both culturally, environmentally, um, ecologically, uh, water mm-hmm. you know, in terms of water, that um, taking a plan from Ohio or Texas or California and plopping it down onto uh, northern New Mexico and saying, oh, this is sustainability. This is going to mm-hmm. work. It's just not going to work here. Mm-hmm. We need our own way of doing things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, our physical geographic landscape is so amazing and diverse. And so is our cultural landscape. I think one of the hopes at least for me and I believe for the land trust in general from this project is to create a somewhat scalable model of doing this work again, because of how unique Taos is and the particular challenges that we face, both in terms of, you know, climate and development and ag, et cetera, and seeing how maybe this could be used in other areas of Northern New Mexico or just other areas in general, because I think that having some of these harder challenges to work with, also enables us to create a much more robust template um, that, of course, would be very, very unique to each location, right? So kind of creating like- It's a process. Yeah, it's a process. It's a product and a process. And, you know, the process is always going to change based on the location and the situation, but kind of creating at least some of those outlined steps of best practices and trial and error and things that we're learning. Um, And again, like drawing on the beautiful work that is being done nationally and internationally um, within similar veins has been really useful. And I, I'm excited to you know share those, those learnings. Right. Yeah. And, and then also just going back to the work you mentioned this before is, is just what is already happening here that works mm-hmm. and how do we, instead of coming in and saying, Oh, you, you should do it this way. Say, Hey, wow, you're doing it this way. And we can, we can e- either help that or help replicate that or um, help you, you know, Uh, make it better as you see fit. Right, exactly. And I think really taking such a humble stance as an organization, yeah, Yeah. it's really important to keep that humility at all times in this work because, you know, I think any organization, whether it's a university or a nonprofit or, you know, maybe an agency, I don't know, um, has, we have this tendency to, want to do things. And that is so great sometimes, but it's also so troublesome. And so I think just remembering to, you know, kind of take that step back always and sometimes lead by following what's already happening. Right. And so, and, and on that point, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier, that you, you, you said this is a long-term process. Mm-hmm. And, and so in a process that comes from, that begins from a humble place of what can, what can, you, what can I learn from you and, mm-hmm. and, and then move forward in that sense, um, a, a long-term nonlinear process um, is, 
I think is something that is difficult in development type of work, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because uh, um, I think traditionally there's both funders and um, and uh, um, uh, people who want results, they want it on a specific timeline. We need a result in six months. We need mm-hmm. a result in 12 months or 18 months, those types of things. But But really this is a... Um, th- this is a process that is constantly morphing and shifting. That's that's how it appears to me. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that is a challenge. Um, you know, it's one thing is that it's hard to evaluate and monitor progress on something as broad as resilience, right? And so we have to break it down into these tiny pieces that are measurable to try and figure out how the heck we, um, you know, see impact and see change. Also, looking at this, you know, for me... I have a tendency to think very much in like a systems framework. And so it's sometimes hard even to narrow it down and focus on one little thing when it's all so interconnected, right? We're talking about food. Okay, so we're talking about, you know, farm to school and we're talking about the work that people such as Micah are doing and all it's like every single thing is so connected. So to to narrow it down to these little these little scopes. Um, a focus is so important that sometimes it's really challenging when all of it is plugging in to this much larger, much more long-term um, effort for resilience in this entire region. And, you know, I think also looking at the impact. So, okay, development pressure is a pretty immediate impact. We can we can quantify that. We can look at that. Looking at the impacts of climate, I know that we discuss this often, really, is that it is still so frequently seen as this far off impact that we might have to face in 20 years, maybe 50 years. But because of the way that it moves, even though it is getting faster, even though the impacts are getting more immediate and more severe, um, I think that it's sometimes hard to still, again, like downscale that, narrow that focus, and then figure out how we work within that because it can often be very broad and overwhelming and long-term in the way that it's visualized. Right. And with climate change, we also don't know um, exactly what that means mm-hmm. for us, right? It's yep. more climate chaos than global warming. Right. You know, it's not just going to get steadily warmer. No. Um, and, and so part of this process is being able to become more adaptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's the, that's the key thing when I think of resilience is adaptability and flexibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. Having options. Yes. And looking at options of significance that draw on the knowledge that has worked for generations, right? So maybe it's that in a very dry year, you're moving water from this one ditch into another ditch because everyone knows that that other ditch is going to carry the water further in that dry year. You know, things like that. But then also working with systems of innovation and trying to figure out how to how to bolster that adaptability, that uh, capacity for adaptation in so many different scenarios that are you know very minute and complex. These acequias have been around now for four or five hundred years mm-hmm. in different parts of the state. And over four or five hundred years, there have been droughts, there have been wet times, there have been all sorts of different things that have come along, and they ha- they're still here. Mm-hmm. So they've been able to adapt. I think the, the, the most difficult thing that they've faced is the modern economy, not necessarily... Uh, environmental changes, and mm-hmm. and so this is a these are a, this is a system of agriculture that is naturally adaptive, mm-hmm. and um, and so it is something. Uh, it 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 appears to me that it's just something 
uh, it's a system that's very powerful to build on and to learn from. Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, as I keep mentioning, it's climate resilience. It's also community resilience, right? Like these are threads of community cohesion. And I think especially as um, Taos changes and grows and we have more, uh, for lack of a better word, newcomers who are, you know, coming, really emphasizing the need to learn about rights and responsibilities and engagement on acequias um, is so important because these systems are incredibly resilient and yes, are, have been resilient for 400, 500 years and are resilient in North Africa, uh, but they require participation, right? Right. And so I think even looking at that as a model for you know, any community, right? Resilience does require participation often. Yeah. So we've been talking about vulnerability mapping. I want to switch over in our last 20 minutes to what this could look like on the ground. So China talked about how um, there's two pieces to this. There's the vulnerability mapping, looking at looking at what, what the vulnerabilities are, but also what the assets are in our community when it comes to, to keeping our lands in uh, our working lands in production and building resiliency into the system of uh, agriculture in our community. The other part uh, has to do with, with working with landowners to, to bring their land either back into production or improve production, um, to, to really work with them on what, what they need. So tell me about this part of the program. Okay, yeah. So um, again, I think this is where we really rely on working with different partner organizations um, so in practice so far, this has happened through an outreach process. Um, you know, so this is myself or a colleague, uh, speaking with landowners and saying, Hey, do you need support in bringing your land into production, etc." Um, but I think that one of the things that we're all really trying to pay attention to is not creating or not replicating like an unsustainable model. So, what that means. Yeah, what does that yeah, mean? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> um, what that means... You knew I was going to ask. ...is that it's not super sustainable for any organization to, you know, just come in and, like, restore the entire landscape of Taos. That's not reasonable. Um, so much more what I think is a sustainable model of that is uh, almost basing it off of a community forestry type of model that is really, like, educating youth to, you know, learn how to seed, et cetera, things like that. So that it's creating uh, both livelihood and education and engagement in all of those areas. And so far, um, it has been through this, you know, kind of individualized outreach process. But with our partner organizations, I know that, um, you know, working with Taos Valley Asiki Association, we're working on uh, doing some of that more cartographic mapping and looking at and identifying um, different parcientes that, again, maybe don't even live here that might need some support in, in doing on-the-ground restoration if that's desired and then working with organizations such as Alianza to do the actual work. And so, you know, through Alianza, that might be a partnership with Not Forgotten Outreach and using a vet corps to, you know, do restoration. It might not be doing that at all. It might be saying, okay, you know, maybe the best advice is to do native grass seed on this land, et cetera. It could be really varied. And I think that's sometimes one of the frustrating things is that it's hard to pin down exactly the best approach because each different parcel is going to be 
so different. So when you go out, and this, we're talking about private landowners here, right? Yep. yep. Right. So when you go out and talk to uh, private landowners, what are some of the issues that they're facing when they say, well, you, you go out and say, would you like to get your land back in production? Mm-hmm. And they say, absolutely, yes. Yeah. But. I mean, I think one of the things is financing, right? Ag is a little bit expensive sometimes. Right. And especially, you know, say that you need a whole fence repaired, right? Like that costs money and it's labor and it's time, et cetera. Um, I think one of the other things is just the people power to do that. So again, if I'm elderly, I maybe don't have the energy to be doing all of that work myself. And so that's where I think it's really important to connect people, folks, young folks who do have that time and energy and enthusiasm to be mentored, um, but to be doing some of the, you know, more gritty labor that is required often. You know, sometimes it's really complex. Sometimes it's working with, um, you know, lot lines and easement adjustments and things such as that. Sometimes it's working to repair an entire acequia. Um, It really depends. But I think that, you know, often finance and kind of human capital are things that are really It's difficult. a major, major issue yeah. for folks. You mentioned lot lines and ease. What do, what do you mm-hmm. mean by that? So if there was the desire to put a piece of property under a conservation easement, um, which means that this property is protected in perpetuity, um, it won't be developed unless that's decided upon beforehand, um, but it can be kept in agriculture and it can be kept in production, which is a really great way of kind of ensuring that legacy, that can be a very complex process, something that is beyond me even. I think that the other folks at the Land Trust really have the detailed knowledge on that. But it often, you know, requires dealing with appraisers and surveyors and, you know, figuring out uh, lot line adjustments if it's a parcel that is maybe uh, divided into more of these linear divisions um, between different, many different family members, etc. And so, Working with that and trying to just be a supportive ally in that process to any families that are undertaking that um, or any individuals that are undertaking that has been really interesting. And then also, you know, of course, there's like neighbor to neighbor interactions and all of that that can get complex. So the conservation easements, we've talked about that a lot on this program, too, Mm -hmm. because it's the main it's the main tool that we use at the Taos Land Trust. Yeah. We, we do a lot of different things. We've got Rio Fernando Park. We've mm-hmm. been working on sidewalk issues, um, green infrastructure, Rio Fernando Collaborative. We're partners in that also. Mm-hmm. But the, the main, the core uh, work of the Taos Land Trust is to help private landowners protect their private lands uh, from development through the use of conservation easements, which means, um, in, in essence, you give up the right to develop that land so that you can keep it in agricultural production or for wildlife or for water, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it is. But it's particularly helpful for people who want to keep their land in agricultural production yeah. but are facing higher tax rates or yeah. things like that. So, um, you know, we have folks who are interested in the conservation easement program for their land um, are absolutely welcome to come into our office and talk in detail about what, what that entails. Um, there's a lot of information on our website, which is tauslandtrust.org. Um, but we are always open and available to, to talk about uh, how, what, the, what the process of a conservation easement is. Mm-hmm. So certain people in this working lands program, certain landowners may, may want a conservation easement. Some may not. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, all, of course, all the way up to the, the private landowner. And, and you, you talked about Alianza, which is super cool organization. What, 
what do they then through this program offer to to the the landowner? So so we're offering uh, conservation easement possibilities and and, and these other uh, options to to get your land back in production. What is Alianza? What is their role? Yeah. So you know, again, they're they're a sovereign organization doing this work, anyways. Um, but the goal is really to partner with them because they're doing um, so much of the restoration focus. And I think restoration is also a tricky word. Yeah. Um, what does that, what does that mean in an agricultural sense? Yeah. So say that land um, has gone fallow, it's brown, right? Restoring it to green in like the most basic sense. So brown to green. Okay. Working on, working on uh, bringing land that was an agricultural uh, production back into ag production or working to help ensure that it can stay in agricultural production if that land uh, or the private landowner is facing pressures that might um, might disadvantage them uh, in the process of keeping it in production. Okay, so the process of a conservation easement is is complicated and mm-hmm. expensive. Um, one of the things that we we try to do is to work with the state legislature to get tax incentives and to help make it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, part of this working lands. Resiliency Initiative, one of our goals is to create kind of a scholarship fund, right? Yeah, and I think that's a, for better or for worse, a long-term goal. I don't think that we're quite there yet, but um, yeah, to kind of break down some of these barriers to putting land under conservation, um, because, you know, financially often it is uh, somewhat of a hefty cost up front, and often that's reimbursed through uh, the tax return or the tax benefit that one would receive um, but I think ideally creating some type of, you know, like revolving loan fund or scholarship program, et cetera, that could help the process just be more sustainable and equitable and accessible for anyone who's interested in doing that type of work. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's great. I, get, I also want to just point out, that I was just thinking of all the different things that we do and not to just sit here and pat ourselves on the that's back okay. for the next nine minutes, but, um, you know, over the past three years at Rio Fernando Park, we have really educated ourselves as an organization into as to how to restore land, how to restore waterways, how to restore a wetland, um, mm-hmm. how to restore an acequia. And um, the, so we've, we've kind of started to develop this bank of knowledge and experience and connections for, for people to utilize uh, both to come to Rio Fernando park and see the work that we did and, and, the, and how did we do it? Uh, and and to learn, it, it's kind of a lab in a way. That's what that's how I think of the park. We got Ben Wright, who's has been who's kind of an amazing guy managing the the land overall. Who's just constantly doing research, constantly talking to people, and and getting ideas. So we have this kind of laboratory mm-hmm. of twenty acres mm-hmm. where people can come and see what's happening, what works, what doesn't, and what might be applicable to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but then we have these, these new resources, these contacts and this experience and, and, and crews that can go like if no, somebody needs to restore their acequia. In the last like five minutes mm-hmm. that we have, um, you know, we've talked about how this is, it's a long-term nonlinear process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, our vision is really 10, 20 years out, not just to the next funding cycle. Right. Um, but in, in the meantime, we need to know if we're having success or not. So, yeah. so how do you monitor resilience? Uh-huh. How do you monitor uh, vulnerability mapping? And uh-huh. how do you monitor um, a, a landowner uh, participation um, 
to, to show that we know we're, we're kind of learning and we know what we're doing or we're or we need to change things? Yeah, that's a good question. I knew it would be. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I do want to take a moment, actually, and thank both the Thornburg Foundation and the Lore Foundation for funding this project. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, you yeah. know, funding the vision really for this. I think that it was um, somewhat a leap of faith. And I'm really happy that we've had this opportunity. Right. Because it's, re- it's really a, a, a kind of a cutting edge yeah. type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so whew, monitoring evaluation for resilience. Yeah, um, how do you do that? So, you know, one thing, there are ways of doing it and there are methods that have been created. I think one thing that's been really useful to me um, is to, again, look at it as a process. And so even, okay, say even we're having a conversation about climate and climate impacts on a particular acequia, right? Like using that as saying, okay, Actually, even this conversation could be increasing resilience and starting to look at it in that way um, rather than just determining outcome on like checklists of deliverables. And so that's one way. Um, Another way is to look at land that has literally gone from um, fallow to in production, right? Or is in the process of that. That's one way. Uh, We could also look at um, partner you know, with the assessor's office, um, Maria Dimas is our fantastic assessor right now, um, partner with resources such as that to say, okay, uh, you know, maybe five years from now we're going back and saying this was the land that was in danger of losing agricultural valuation. You know, this is the land that has been able to maintain that valuation because it's gone back into production. Like that could be a way of monitoring it. Um, And I think, in the long run, too, really looking at how just how these systems are set up. And so, again, some of that is even planning and saying, OK, what is our plan for, you know, a severe drought in two years, five years, 10 years? Right. Like that can be a way of saying, OK, we at least have that conversation going, that plan in place, et cetera. Like how, how are we going to share what water we yeah, have? Water sharing agreements, yeah. things like that. Um, and then also, I think, oh, Education, particularly for youth and working with youth um, that are interested in agriculture or aren't interested at all, um, but might be interested and they just don't know it, right. working with them. <laughs> well, that's what we found with the YCC crew yeah. that we've had the past two years. Mm-hmm. The, the, the crew in the summers, a lot of those young folks come out and they're like, well, this seems interesting. But then they're, some of them are really struck by, wow, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to be yeah. farming. I want to be doing work on the land. No, I completely agree. I remember speaking with some of them this summer just about what it means to pursue, you know, a career based on climate. And it was pretty beautiful to see their eyes get really wide and and get excited about that. Um, So, yeah, I think there are many ways, you know, maybe with the Taos Valley Aseki Association, it could even be as simple as looking at, uh, you know, number of active parciantes versus inactive parciantes and seeing if the active number is increasing Etc. So I think there are, you know, the, just those kind of basic breakdown ways of evaluating um, a process and a project such as this. But I think in the long term, it's really about looking at resilience and community resilience and seeing how we are working in that um, rather than working on it and how it's impacting us and how we're impacting it. All right. Yeah. This is Jim O'Donnell from the Talos Land Trust, and I've been here with China Dixon, also of the Talos Land Trust. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Well, if you do have any questions about this project, um, please feel free to reach out to myself or any of our partner organizations. Um, 
china at tauslandtrust.org, C-H-Y-N-A is how you spell my name, or give our office a call. I'd be happy to speak further about anything. And I also want to just thank everyone who's doing this work already on this land and has made it possible to even comprehend the idea of a resilient agricultural system in Taos, because it is absolutely possible, but only because it's already happening. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico, edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.tauslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.